0: Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome one of the greatest frontmen of all time. A guy so good I would, and have, traveled very long ways just to see him on stage. Singer for the Jesus Lizard, Scratch Acid, Quee, and the Reformed Flipper, as well as an amazing actor, cook, graphic designer, and all-around artist, David Yao, David, how are things?
1: Well, now I'm crying because of that (laughs) that introduction. Jesus Christ, I'm just an
0: idiot. (laughs) You're definitely not an idiot. You are truly one of the most spectacular people to ever grace a stage (laughs) for a frontman, and I truly believe
1: that. Well, you know, you're Canadian. I I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Robert. That's very very nice.
0: Well, you're welcome. Looking outside right now though, does this movement taking place right now get you excited about finally taking that fascist tangerine out of the White House?
1: Um, well, uh I I sure hope so. I mean, I don't want to hold my breath, uh but um, I sure hope so. Yeah, I, I I hate that guy more than I would think it's possible to hate anything.
0: I'm I'm on the same boat on that. Does this movement feel different than other movements to you? Because you're kind of right in the heart of some of the biggest protests right now.
1: I'm sort of kind of not because where I live, uh, I'm like about 15 miles. North northeast of downtown Los Angeles, oh, right at okay. the foot of the mountains, and so I don't, I haven't seen any of that stuff. And um, as much as I would uh, like to participate more in sort of some of the protests and stuff, I have, um, as the doctor put it, a smidge of emphysema, and so my girlfriend is just not willing to let me go to a place where there's uh, there's that kind of a crowd and uh, increased. Likelihood of contracting the virus. So I haven't seen firsthand any of this stuff. I've only, you know, only what they post on the internet. But I'm grateful to it. I think it's. I think it's amazing that um, some. It seems like there are some actual changes being made, and uh, you know, kudos to the Supreme Court for doing two things recently against the fucking dumbass. So you know.
0: Well, we want you to all stay healthy. So <laughs> continue to stay healthy. Humor has always played a huge role in your art, even when the subject matter got very dark. Do you feel like comedians are the one helping keep that rage alive in the entertainment currently? Or where did that passion go in music? <laughs> um, I don't know.
1: If, I don't know what role comedians are playing in and- Anything. Uh, Dave Chappelle sure did a really great thing just recently on uh, called 8 Minutes and Forty Six Seconds." Um, but uh, I don't know. I just uh, I think a lot of the humor that I have sort of stuck into the craft that I've created is uh, largely influenced by the stuff that I was paying attention to when uh, the punk rock came around. You know, some of the uh, some of the bands in Austin that were pretty. Pretty funny and interesting, uh, specifically like the butthole surfers and um, stuff like that just uh, helped me realize that how uh, imperative humor is in stuff. Does that answer your question at all?
0: Yeah, of course. Well, did you think the bands like the bad brains were taking themselves a little bit too seriously back then?
1: That's funny you take the bad brains, because I don't like and never have liked the bad brains. It's a very unpopular uh, position, and I get uh, berated for it. Uh, yeah, I, I've i never been a fan of anybody who takes themselves that seriously. I mean, you know, I have respect for, you know, like Henry Rollins or Michael Girard, but, man, those guys take themselves so fucking seriously. <laughs> um, I just... um. I've been doing these cameos recently where people put in a request for a video message from me, and one of them, they wanted some advice. And I am i don't think I'm necessarily a good person to ask advice from. But, um, yeah, one sort of thing that I've always stuck by is you should always take what you do, what you have passion for, seriously, but you should not take yourself seriously. And that's kind of just the way I... That's the way I roll, yeah.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned cameo because I wanted to find out from you what sparked the interest to do that.
1: They got in touch with me. Um, like at the beginning of March, I got an email from this guy saying, Hey, you want to do this cameo thing? And I checked it out and I said, Well, nobody's going to pay to have me wish him a happy birthday. And he said, I think you're wrong, David. And so I have eight requests remaining. And when I'm done with that eight I think I'll be at a hundred we'll have done a hundred and ninety of these things really yeah
0: that's that's pretty yeah, impressive
1: it it sure is yeah, I'm awfully flattered um and most of the time they're really fun unless people get weird, but most of the time they're fun
0: well, I'd like to take you way back now what were the, some of the formative MK. what were some of the formative influences that helped shape you as an artist
1: well uh when I went to I went to uh, college, it wasn't really an art school, but I, I was a fine art major in college. And um, one of the faculty members there, a guy named Mark Todd, we we became. It was his first year of teaching, and it was my first year of school, and we just really hit it off, and um, we became really good friends. And uh, sort of, his, he had a much better. Uh, um, a more refined sense of disgusting humor than I did at the time. And uh, he used to t- say things like, you know, Jesus started um, uh, uh, venereal disease from fucking sheep. <laughs> and I wasn't really, I wasn't really necessarily a Christian, but I was like, man, you don't, don't, you can't say that. <laughs> and so, um, he, a, a lot of the influence of humor and um, sideways thinking was uh, started by Mark and then he ended up, he did a bunch of record covers for Scratch Acid and the Jesus Lizard um, and we're still friends, I still I talk to him a few times a year, but um, he had a huge impact on the way I, I thought about art and philosophy and women and humor and music not music much. He had terrible taste in music. But um, that, and, and like I mentioned, the Butthole Surfers were really important to me, and uh, the Dicks and Terminal Mind and the, the punk rock in Austin in 1979, 1980. Yeah, um, kind of changed my life.
0: Well, I remember you mentioning Edward Grieg as an important songwriter. Do you think that modern artists really don't give enough respect or retrospective to artists they were before what we call modern music.
1: Oh Jesus! Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I don't. I really don't know what's going on in the sort of the modern music world. Um, I like Billie Eilish, but uh, outside of that, I don't really know what's going on in the
0: Well, even your the, contemporary music, modern music world. even your contemporaries, you guys, and. It's weird to say this. The Jesus Lizard, I feel, is, took a lot from classical music, and yes, I understand that that's a weird statement to make. But it seemed more so that way than a lot of other bands of your time. Do you think it was that that way?
1: Well, uh, Dwayne was certainly well versed in uh, classical music, and um, I, I'm I'm a fan, but I have I'm certainly no aficionado. I can I I can see that. I can see that sort of coming through. Um and particularly, you know, with with the finesse and the way that Dwayne played or plays, it's um that that makes sense to me.
0: We're gonna to get to Jesus Lizard in a in a bit. But I wanna take you back to Scratch Acid. How did that band first come to be?
1: Oh fuck, I don't remember. Um <laughs> uh um I don't know. I mean, I had been for um, less than a year. I was in my, the first band I was in was called Toxic Shock. And I played bass in Toxic Shock. And my girlfriend, Carla, and my best friend, Steve, were both singers. We had a, they, we had two singers. And then Brian played on drums and Fred Hawkins on guitar. And we only lasted for, I think, like nine months or something like that. And very early on, Steve quit. So it was just Carla singing. But then when Toxic Shock woke up, Steve and I wanted to do something. And, God, I don't remember. I think David Sims and I were roommates. We, you know, we were friends with uh, Ray and Brett, but they, they had been in a band called Jerry's Kids. Not the famous Jerry's Kids the Jerry's Kids nobody's heard of. And, uh, yeah, I think we just started talking about, you know, doing music together. I don't remember how it. You know what the instance was, how the how it happened. I let me make something up.
0: (laughs) Well, did you think that you were going to play bass your entire career, or did you always see that switch to vocals inevitable?
1: Oh man, that career never entered my mind. You know, I didn't think that. I at that time, you know. it never entered my mind that we would even make a cassette, you know, that much less a career. And then when um, Steve, Steve quit singing with Scratch Acid, and then David, David and Brett were both playing guitar. And I just took over uh, the vocals when Steve left. But um, golly, career never, never even entered the picture because back then, and then, and then when we made a record, you know, I mean, it blew my mind that I could, Hadn't made a record That you could hold This fucking vinyl thing And I'm singing on it And then when it sells You know To people that you Don't even know To It sells like A thousand copies And you go Oh my god This is just, I'm, just, I'm the king Of the fucking world You know It's just Crazy
0: <laughs> Well what do you think The reason behind The original breakup Of Scratch Acid was?
1: Uh, Ray is Quite the perfectionist And um, Brett is not and um uh, to a degree it was battling those two two guys battling with each other. Um, I think we may have just sort of run out of ideas too, but um what what is the 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 rote answer, the um inter band differences? Intra band differences? I don't know, something like that.
0: <laughs> well, when you came back to Scratch Acid for those three shows why did you choose Austin and Seattle as the other two cities on top of that touch-and-go anniversary? Not that I'm complaining. The Seattle show was much needed and something truly amazing.
1: Um, oh, were you at the Seattle show? Yeah. Well, I, I think adding Seattle to the other cities was my idea because I remember Scratch Acid didn't go to the West Coast until 1987. And uh, we had already gone to tour europe for a month before we went to the west coast and friends of mine who had migrated from austin to seattle were telling me you know you guys got to come play seattle you're, you're you're really popular here and uh, there's a lot of people that like you and i was going yeah sure right and we got to when we played there in 1987 we played a place i can't remember the name i think it was called the venue i'm not sure but um it was it was packed. It was fucking packed. It was sold out. There was there was so little room in the club that there were people smished onto the stage. And apparently there was some people who would later be, you know, grunge, rock luminaries were all in the uh the audience. I think uh I think I helped get a young Mark Arm into the show. He couldn't he didn't have a ticket or something like that. And um it was it was uh, it was uh Pretty good show. It was also the very first time that I was naked in front of an audience because it was funny. We were doing this song called Crazy Dan. It's kind of long. I was wearing a suit, and somebody jumped on stage and pulled my pants down. And I had seen, like, Lux and Tear naked and stuff, and I thought, okay, he handled it really cool. I'm just going to be cool, you know. Like, I'm not not going to deal with it when the song's over. (laughs) (laughs) I looked over to my left, and there were these girls sitting on stage, like – pointing at my dick and chuckling and I looked down and <laughs> there was no dick. It was like just the head without the dick. And it was like, you know, it was about half an inch long. And I got so, so embarrassed. And uh, after, at the end of the show, um, I told David Sims about that and he said, oh, don't worry, girls know dicks are like accordions. And so, um, and so that, um, so yeah, the, that, so that's the only time that Scratch Acid I ever played in Seattle and so, when we did the reenactment shows, um, I thought we should tack Seattle
0: on. Being picked by Jeff Magnum of Neutral Milk Hotel to do the second reunion of Scratch Acid, I think, came as a shock to a lot of people. What was it like having him pick you guys, and what were those shows like?
1: Was that the ones in Europe, in England? Yeah. Oh, um. Well, you know, I, I was. I was a very very late bloomer to a neutral milk hotel um I think even at the time i didn't i didn't i didn't know who they were or anything and since then you know my girlfriend she's a she's a fan and uh yeah and she my girlfriend told me that uh our, that she thought there were a lot of similarities in our lyrics, and so I checked out his lyrics and he he's way better than I am but uh retrospectively, I was very flattered like, oh wow, that guy liked us okay cool we saw um Daniel Johnston opening for the Breeders, opening for Neutral Milk Hotel at the Hollywood Bowl, that was something else.
0: Well, do you think that there's a possibility of more scratch acid in the future?
1: Well, I have, through all this, the reenactment stuff that we've done, I've finally learned to quit saying never, but that's really unlikely. It's, it's really, really unlikely.
0: Well, let's move into the Jesus lizard. What were some of the Oakley, early? <laughs> what were some of the early discussions about where you all wanted the direction of the sound to go?
1: I don't think we ever discussed that. Um, if we do, if we did, either I wasn't in the room or I wasn't paying attention. Um, I don't think we ever. Uh, this would be a, this would be a better question for almost any of the other three guys. We I don't think we ever had that conversation.
0: <laughs> well, do, do you think Dwayne and Dave uh, really came up with most of, of the songwriting?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the way we generally would work it would... One of them would have, a, you know, an idea for a riff or a part or whatever and bring it to practice. We'd sort of fuck around with it and push and pull and, you know, add to it and take away from it. And Mac and I would always have... Uh, you know, structural changes, and then as the vocals sort of got added on, I would oftentimes say, hey, can we do this part, you know, two more times, and then just just cut and remove that part and whatever. Predominantly, it was almost always uh, Dwayne or David coming up with some riff.
0: Well, what inspired the move forward as a band and not just be a recording-only project? I guess because
1: hard to remember was, um, well, obviously you know that the first record that was just sort of, I mean Corey at Touch and Go didn't really want to put that record out because he didn't like it very much but he felt like if we had a real drummer that we had uh, potential mm-hmm. and you know we were all, uh, David and I were already pretty good friends with Corey from uh, the Scratch Acid days and yeah so I guess I guess I I don't remember. I At some point, you know, we decided, okay, well, maybe it would be worthwhile to be a real band. And that's when uh, I called, you know, this is all history or whatever, but I got in touch with Mac McNeely, and he came up to Chicago. and It just sort of gelled, like, immediately. And we just thought, now, this is pretty cool. Let's tour like fucking crazy.
0: Well, it's funny you say that. But we did. Because you were one of the hardest working bands of the 90s. What kind of preparation did you have to do to sustain that level of intensity, uh, intensity on stage?
1: You gotta drink a lot of beer. <laughs> Lots of beer.
0: Okay, well, what was your beer of choice back then?
1: Well, I'm a little, little embarrassed now to say it, but it was Budweiser.
0: It was a different that time can, back I then. Can,
1: can, yeah can can I tell you why that's embarrassing to me
0: oh please
1: because pe- people would make fun of me about it you know and you know there's the british joke uh, you know what's uh whats American beer and uh sex about got in common what about fucking near water <laughs> and so but but before this election the the last election last u s presidential election. I was, I think, in Austin, Texas, and I saw a billboard for Budweiser. It said, Budweiser, make happy hour great again. And that seemed to me that it was endorsing the asshole. And so at that point, I I quit drinking Budweiser. I've never bought an Anheuser-Busch product since then. Um, I threw away all the Budweiser shit that I had. I gave my Budweiser neon to a friend. And uh, so... I don't, now I drink Mexican lagers.
0: Well, have have you like reached into the craft beer scene at all?
1: Yeah, I can't, like IPAs and shit, I hate that. I (laughs) I cannot stomach that stuff. It tastes like dirt with shit sauce in it. (laughs) I I don't get it. I just don't get it. I mean, I'll try different IPAs and stuff like that, and I just, I, I, I don't understand how they're so popular. They just taste awful.
0: You're living in the Mecca, though. The amount of amazing, uh, like, IPAs down in California is just outstanding. (laughs) Well, okay. (laughs) What was the relationship like between you and Steve Albini? Or is, I should say. Do you think that he helped capture the best of you? Or was there another engineer that you think got it right?
1: Um, I think Steve was very um, important in the... the Development and the sound that people considered is our sound. I mean, it's almost it's almost analogous to George Martin kind of thing, where he was, the, you know, he's sort of the shift lizard. But um, as inventive and as um, unique as the sounds that he got. Are. Like, you know, the drum sound, like the, the Pixies and fucking PJ Harvey and those recordings, it's just the Breeders, it's amazing. Um, it, but now if I listen to some of those records, I I think the mix is kind of weird. Like, uh, I do think that too often the vocals are too quiet. Um, but, uh, you know, outside of that, God, his techniques and his... uh. Experimentation were just great. It was a blast to record with them because we just do the weirdest things you know for when uh, we were recording wheelchair epidemic, I think i was I laid on my back on the in the live room in the studio, and they had a microphone on a boom right above my chest pointed at my mouth, and then there was another microphone hanging directly from from the ceiling directly above me, just pointed down at my mouth. And then there was another microphone with a long cord attached to the same place at the top, at the ceiling directly above me. And right before we started tracking, I sort of swung the microphone so that it was swinging around my body in a great big circle, so that the sh- uh, the phase would shift and just do weird shit. It's like I don't know if you can pick that out in the recording, but <laughs> we did it, and it sure looked weird.
0: Do you think that anybody? really got the vocal mix right then? Do you you think that it, like, got perfected on Blue?
1: Um, Well, I think on both Shot and Blue, uh, they're more prominent. Um, I think Shot is a pretty good record. David Sims says that that's the best recording of us that there is. Blue, that Andy Gill produced, um, uh, was kind of a lot more of a stretch, sort of uh, further away from what we'd done. But it's—I think it's a really cool record. Um, maybe not all the songs are so great, but uh, it's a great headphone record. Texturally, it's—it's it's kind of amazing.
0: I think Shot and Blue are incredibly underrated. And does it make you happy that they're finally getting the resurgence now? It seems like a lot of people are discovering Jesus Lizard now through Shot and Blue. Oh,
1: I—I I I was unaware.
0: Yeah, I think—I uh, think like the last time I checked doing a little bit of research, it seems like those are like the first two albums that people on Apple Music go to first and then go to Goat.
1: Oh, okay. Huh.
0: Which I did think was also a little strange. I'm surprised that they just didn't start with Liar, but...
1: (laughs) Well, Well, if you don't know any better, you know.
0: How did the song Panic and Cicero come to be on the movie Clerks?
1: (laughs) I have no idea. I um, uh, I think that uh, Kevin Smith asked "Touch and Go" if he could use this song, and I think he said okay. D-
0: did you see a spike in like fans after that?
1: No. Well, I I I didn't notice one. I don't. When did that come out?
0: Ninety three, I think.
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, if there was this spike in in popularity, I don't know that I would necessarily attribute it to uh, that song being in that movie. I mean, it's it's not what you would call, like, a blockbuster film.
0: Well, why did the Jesus Lizard disband the first time around?
1: Um, well, when we signed to Capitol, we had, we had a three-record contract. And I remember Gary Gersh, at the time, was running Capitol, and I told him, you know, this is, uh, this is neat that you guys want to put out our records and shit, but we're not going to sell any records. And he said, uh, David, I don't agree with you. I think you're going to sell a lot of records. And we didn't. Uh, It was was either the same or less than the previous Catch and Go records. And, um, so when we signed that deal with Capitol, there was a clause in there because, um, uh, Mac was getting pressure from his family to do, uh, less touring. And, uh, was was kind of what you know. God, there's a squirrel on my feet, and I'm afraid it's going to bite me. Go away. <laughs> um, uh, so there was a clause in the contract that said, if if necessary, that Mac could leave the band. And so he was kind of through domestic obligations. He was kind of uh, forced out, and he requested that we get Jim Kimball. Uh, who, you know, Dwayne had been playing with uh, in the uh, Dennis and Kimball trio. And we all knew him, you know. I mean, I didn't know him that well, but he, you know, he was in the Laughing Hyenas and Mule, and he worked in the shipping department at Touch and Go, and everything seemed like he was okay, Uh, no big deal. But then he proved to be a real fucking asshole, and he's a just, he's a a dick. And um, so... And I, I love Mac. I love Mac with every fiber of my being. And Mac is just an incredible person and an, and an amazing drummer. And so when Mac left and Jim took over, it just became a job. It was no longer fun. We were we were creating music because we were contracted to do it, and it wasn't it wasn't um, the thrill that it had been. I've always thought that the most important thing in a in a band is the chemistry between the guys and if the guys and or girls or whatever, if um, if you change that, if it's a good thing and you change that, it's unlikely that it's going to be as good or better. And uh, with Jim, it definitely wasn't as good. And uh, so after we had done two of the three records from Capitol and we weren't selling any records, they called up our manager and something and said, you know, uh, you don't have to, don't worry, you're, you're free to go. You don't have to make a third record. So, I, in the moment that our manager called, told me that on the phone, I said, "Okay, great, I quit." And that was that.
0: What was the first reunion tour of the Jesus Lizard like?
1: Um, uh, that's hard. That's from on stage. That's kind of a hard thing to answer. But yeah, I mean, we were a lot of a lot of the reviews and the people I talked to who saw those shows uh, said, you know, you guys were tighter than you were before. And I'll, I think I'll go along with that because there is definitely less alcohol consumption on those uh, on those shows than there had been in the old days and as far as the shows themselves uh, that first one was in um, I think Minehead, England at Altamar's parties and uh, I was (laughs) I was scared I was so nervous (laughs) I was so fucking nervous man Um, and uh right before we went on I, I said to my girlfriend uh you know i i'm not uh i'm not gonna take my shirt off or go in the audience <laughs> like three seconds into the first song i was in the audience and i just couldn't help it and it was it was it was outrageously emotional i couldn't believe the um the outpouring of like I mean, people were crying. It was fucking crazy. Our manager cried. Our sound man was crying. <laughs> it was crazy.
0: Well, then you got back together for a second reunion. And this time around, I personally think that the band sounded the best they have their entire career. Did these shows feel different wow. for you? Because i just like to say that Nashville show with the Cannery was one of the single greatest moments I've ever watched a band. Oh, wow.
1: Well, thanks. Uh no, they they uh I think in general all the shows were just uh a, a lot of fun. It was, you know, the way it always had been. I, those guys are outstanding musicians and uh they're really good at what they do and I love being in their company. Yeah, so there you go. Um I think the funnest one we've done for me, I don't know if the other guys would concur, but uh when we played the the henry fonda theater here in los angeles um whenever that was i think that might have been year before last i'm not sure but um i had this goofy idea i had been in colorado visiting some friends and i saw in this store this weird full head white poodle mask and i said i need to have that and um then when it came time for that show i just had this stupid idea of uh wearing a white robe and um, sock suspenders and my cowboy boots and a zebra print thong and nothing else um, except the poodle mask, uh, that it was a good idea to do that and have a big bucket of black ink and um, stick my arms in it and uh, take it from there and do Dudley first. And then when the vocals came in, I took off my poodle mask and I was wearing a um, bald wig which surprised a few people because it, really, it looked like I'd shaved my head <laughs> so anyway it was just um, sort of a goofy theatrical thing but I had a blast doing that and um, yeah it's, it's, it's been
0: a lot of fun can we expect to see more Jesus Lizard in the future
1: uh, same answer as Scratch Acid I mean it's I <laughs> it, uh, um, d- don't hold your breath, but uh, if it happens, don't be surprised.
0: Well, how does it feel to have such an impact on so many other bands throughout the years? Oh,
1: I'm not aware of that, Robert. I don't know. I, um, I, I'm not cognizant
0: of that. Do you have like a lot of front men when you're out and about stop you and, and and tell you about about how you've influenced them at all?
1: Um. <laughs> Well, maybe like, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, maybe a while back. I, I, that doesn't really happen now. For one thing, I don't uh, go out too often. Um, and when I do go to, you know, see shows, it's more often than not, it's friends of mine anyway. So, you know, I'm just hanging out with these people I know. They they don't say stuff like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how did the banquist come to be?
1: Well, I think that Matt and Paul had started Quee when they lived in Minneapolis. Um, and I believe they said at the time that Quee uh, was a Minneapolis, Min- Minneapolis, Min- Minneapolisite, minneapolis <laughs> um, term for homosexual. And I don't think that either of them really are, although I think sometimes maybe. And um, I guess they relocated to... LA, we, uh, we became friends, uh, and I was going to, they, they had a show that they were going to be playing in Burbank, and they asked if I would, you know, do a song with them, and uh, I did, I think, two songs with them, one of theirs, and then I think we did uh, Glamorous by the Jesus Lover, and um, it was so much fun, I just sort of became, I just sort of, like, became part of the band. That was a cool band. I mean, not, uh, not very well known, but they're like when we played in D.C., Ian Mackay was there, and uh, I've you know, know, known Ian for a long time. Uh, Matt and Paul didn't know him, but boy, oh boy, were they excited to meet him. Um, and Ian told me that he thought that Quee was the best band I was ever in.
0: Well, did that Collapse Lung make you reevaluate playing live?
1: No, no, no. That you know, that was just a um, an injury that uh, got healed, and you no, know, I, I I never really think about it.
0: Well, you had the que aprons. Did you ever contemplate opening up your own restaurant? We all have heard the stories about you being a world-renowned cook already.
1: Um, I've thought of opening a restaurant. Um. I've worked in a lot of restaurants. I've had more restaurant jobs than than any other kind. And uh, having worked in them and, uh, and seeing what it's like for the owners, uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, that it's it's not it's not fun, and it's such a fucking gamble. You open a restaurant, chances are you're not going to make it, even if it's good. <laughs> but I've thought about it. We uh, we used to talk like Whitney O'Keefe, the world's greatest sound man, who was. The um, our sound man for the last many years of us being a band, he had an idea back in the early nineties for a restaurant called eat shit. And <laughs> it would be, it would be stuff like, you know, hot dog casseroles and uh, you know, tuna fish sandwiches with potato chips on it and the kind of thing that would you would get a recipe off the side of a Campbell soup can, that kind of food, <laughs> and then what we what we figured would be the the piece de resistance would be um, a peanut butter and um, banana sandwich, but and instead of slicing the bananas, you just serve it on a hot dog bun, and we figured that um, people would come from all over the world to eat that you know eat shit, and but we never did anything about it.
0: I think that a was a great just, idea. That would even work as, as, a, as a food truck.
1: Yeah. It would be re- really good white trash food. Lots of mayonnaise.
0: <laughs> well, how did you get involved with the Tool Schism commentary track?
1: Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> um, I, uh, I think Adam Jones asked me to do that. I... I don't remember. I, I, fuck, I, barely, I forgot that that happened. Yeah, I think Adam Jones asked me to do
0: that. That is one of my favorite commentary tracks. Isn't
1: I, there some gag about making Maynard go get more beer or something like that?
0: Yeah. It, it, to me, it was. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Tool, and I just I think that you, you captured the humor of that band brilliantly in your commentary track. Oh, good. Well, why did you guys never tour together? That seems like a perfect pairing.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I just got, never got booked that way.
0: Your acting roles have been true scene stealers. Was the Jim Sikora stuff in the 90s the first delve into into that world?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I had done you know, theater in high school and college, but the uh, stuff with Jim was the first.
0: What are some of the kind of roles and genres you'd like to try out now?
1: Well... I don't know how good of an actor I am, but I I really enjoy it, especially when it goes well. And so I think I would like to try pretty much everything, you know, from a a ferry to a a truck driver to a, I don't know, a a shrimp. Um, I'd like to try all kinds of stuff. I mean... It seems like more often than not, I get cast as a bad guy, which is okay, but uh, it's, it's fun doing... The thing that thrills me about acting is um, when you're shooting a scene, and if it goes well, if it goes right, when the director calls cut, it's so weird because you just were experiencing this thing... You know, you weren't you. The person you're talking to is not the person you're talking to. You weren't here. It was like this fucking bizarre, magical thing that transplants you, and then it's cut, and you're suddenly back to earth, and you're in this place with all these people gathered around, holding clipboards and microphones and shit. And it's a, uh, it's an amazing feeling if it, uh, if it, if it, when it goes right like that, when you. And you and whoever you're acting with, uh, kind of nail it. There's, there's nothing else like it. It's, um, it's, it's almost like sex because it's so personal, and it just, you know, if it's just you and another person, it's just kind of. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's it's a great feeling. When
0: it works well. I just like to say that under the silver lake, your performance is one of the best of the decade. You completely stole that movie. <laughs> so I would not be like concerned <laughs> you're, about you're your acting. Silly. It's, you're a, silly. it's a really good performance. It really. Uh, I was shocked at how transcendent that was. I was. I was honestly. You stole that movie. Well, that's
1: not true. But thanks. I tell you what, it sure was fun because um, with the way it was scheduled and everything with the shooting, when we were at the Griffith Park uh, Observatory, when the homeless king first comes up over the ledge, the hill there, and meets Andrew Garfield, when you see that happening, that's the first I had ever spoken with Andrew Garfield. We didn't get to um, uh, rehearse or anything. And... That was really fun because I didn't know him. I wasn't really that familiar with his work, but we had a blast doing it. We did a few takes where we just laughed all the way through it. It was a lot of fun. It was great to work. It's great working with people like that. He's just—he's uh, fucking phenomenal. In that scene where he's uh, in the chair with the chains around him, mm-hmm. I don't know how many times we did that scene. Well, probably twenty times or something like that. And every time. Every time he had a single tear just sort of drop out of his eye. It's fucking amazing.
0: Well, have you ever contemplated stepping behind the camera again to make a feature?
1: Um, I would like to be a director of photography, um, you know, operate the camera, a camera operator. Uh, I wouldn't want to direct it, anything. I uh, I directed a video a long time ago, and um, it really showed me that, that I... I, I can't stand to tell people what to do, and that's all you do as a director. So um, that's just not something I'm interested in, like doing camera work.
0: What was it like stepping into the art world and getting some stuff up in a gallery?
1: Well, that's what I, I'd gone to school for art, and so back in the uh, what, uh, 78 and 79 and 80, I was doing a lot of art and would have gallery shows and stuff. Um, And then, yeah, and then out of the blue, whenever the fuck that was, like 14 years or so ago, this guy who had a gallery said, hey, you used to draw and paint. You want to do some more? And I said, okay, sure. And he said, you can have a a one-man show in three months. And so, and he said he wanted something big, too. And so I made this one that was six feet by eight feet, And it's the biggest painting I ever worked on. And I just did a a shit ton of paintings all of a sudden, you know, with a three-month deadline. Um, And uh, also, at the time, I was unemployed. And so uh, I had plenty of time to work on it. These days, for the last five and a half years, um, I just haven't had time or the space to... uh, to do any painting or anything like that. And I, I kind of don't have the desire. I'm sure I will again before I kick the bucket. But
0: Do you have a bunch of unseen material just sitting around, or have you pretty much done all your stuff into an exhibition?
1: Um, I think everything I've done was either an exhibition, or I used to have a, a website for my art. Uh, I took that down a while back. But everything that I've done has been seen by somebody.
0: So was it true that it was Mike Patton that inspired the solo album?
1: No, he didn't inspire it. But um, when, uh, when I was married and was living in Northwest Indiana, Crown Point, Indiana, about 50 miles from Chicago, um, Alexander Hacke from the, the band Einsturz and the Neubauten, is a pretty good friend of mine. And uh, he came to visit, and he spent like three weeks at my house, and he showed me the rudiments of Pro Tools, and uh, I bought an inbox. I think I—I I may be wrong, but I think I bought the first inbox in Chicago. And uh, so I just sort of started working on it, just having weird ideas and fucking around with it. And uh, so I've been doing that for, I think, probably a year or so. And then uh, Dwayne had started a Tomahawk with Mike Patton. And I went to see them, and uh, I didn't really know Mike at the time. And he grabbed me by the shoulders and said, uh, you're doing a solo album, and I'm putting it out whether you like it or not. (laughs) And I said, great, I've I've already started on it. And so, um, you know, for the next few years, I work at it off and on. I think think from start to finish, it was probably about eight years to do that, because I didn't work on it very religiously. It was fun to do.
0: Well, how did you like working with Ipecac?
1: Uh, it was fun. Uh, you know, Mike and uh, Greg Workman, who kind of really, he's the machine behind it. Um, they're both swell guys. Hard working, respectable, nice sellers.
0: Well, you were no stranger to interviews. What was it like to choose a cat as your interview subject?
1: Oh, are you talking about Lil Bub? Yeah. Um, God, I don't remember. I think, I think... Uh most of those questions were I think Mike who, who was a little Bub's dude, I think he wrote most of those questions. I don't I don't remember that well. Yeah, we did I did this sort of interview with her on uh, I think Vice or Onion or something like that. And then he actually had a, a little sort of talk show that he did in um in uh, Chicago at the Metro and uh i was a guest on there and that was really that was that was really fun and it was great to have met Lil bub she was a adorable little pussycat can i tell you a, a story that has to do with that of course however many years ago that was um my at the time i had this agent who was working at albuquerque where they shoot uh better call saul and um he said, hey, can you be in Albuquerque day after tomorrow for a, a, uh, an audition? And I said, well, okay. And uh, they said that this was in, I think, June or July. And they said, if there's any date between August 1st and August 15th that you can't shoot, then uh, let us know. And I said, well, I can't do it on August 6th because that's when I'm going to be in Chicago doing this thing with Bill Buck. And they said, oh, that's okay, that's fine, come on anyway. So I drove the 804 miles to Albuquerque, spent the night in a hotel. Next morning, I get up and go do the uh, audition. And they had a form saying, you know, if you, for some reason, can't shoot uh, from this date to this date, you've got to let us know. And I said, I can't do it on the six And they said, oh, that's okay. And so I did the audition for Better Call Saul and, uh, The casting director said, excellent, great, you've got the job. I said, wow, you know, I couldn't believe it because I love Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad and all that stuff. And uh, they said, well, we were shooting on August 6th. I said, you have fucking got to be kidding me. (laughs) And so um, I didn't get the part because I had obligated myself to a little bug.
0: Well, how did the Cat Illustration book come to be?
1: Um. Uh well Johnny Temple who runs Akasha Books who did the Jesus of a book um, is a dear old friend and uh, I had do you have you seen the cat book
0: I've uh, yes I have
1: okay well there's sort of a little preamble at the beginning explaining what happened and I just you know I used to draw these little cat puns mm-hmm. and uh, and then once I you know uh, these days I'm sort of retoucher. And I know Photoshop better than anybody else. Um, And I started just doing those drawings and then filling them in with, like, photographs and uh, uh, photographic textures and stuff. And um, I asked Johnny Temple from Akashic if he would put out uh, that book. And with the slight hesitation and reservations, he said, "Okay."
0: Your graphic design stuff, did that kind of come out of nowhere or did you just like playing around with that in the beginning and it just kind of grew into something that you did more often or were you kind of just thrown into it
1: well when when i was in chicago um a friend of mine told me about this program called photoshop and at the time it was on version two and uh, i read an article on it where it said that you could edit people out of a picture which now is like oh big deal at that time, I was going, no way. How? What the... No way. What about the stuff that's behind him? Where does that come from? And so um, I was at a friend's place who did video directing, and they had a scanner. And uh, I said, oh, fuck, you got a scanner. Can I get a scan? And he said, of what? And I said, I don't care. Just a photograph. Give me a photograph. And he had been a, a park ranger. And there was this photo of these 12 park rangers Two rows of six, and I wanted to remove everybody else and just leave my buddy standing there alone. But he was in the back row, so I had to take his head off and put it on another person. But the only person who, who whose body was in the position where it wouldn't look, make it, his neck looked like he was broken, was a black fella, a, a black fella. So I had to change the color of his skin to match my buddy's face. And at the time, I knew nothing about resolution. And whatever. I mean, this thing fit on a floppy disk. And so I did, I removed the other 11 guys and just left my buddy standing there alone. And uh, I left it on the desk of the guy who had the scanner. And a couple weeks later, he called and said, hey, I saw that thing you did. You want a job? I proceeded to start doing stuff for the 3D preparation. Like, they gave me pictures of buildings in Chicago And I had to take out the perspective and change any signs to be fictitious, uh, remove any pedestrians or cars, and uh, make all the buildings look like they'd gone through a terrible fire. And then they used those for this video game they were working on called Dueling Firemen. And uh, that never came to fruition. But that's sort of how I got started in doing the Photoshop. And I would do stuff for, you know rudimentary stuff for the Jesus Lizard. And then when the band broke up in 99, um, I got a job as a photo retoucher.
0: Well, how much uh, involvement did you have on the Jesus Lizard book? Were you involved pretty heavily do, doing the graphic design? I, I,
1: Yeah, I did that whole thing. I mean, it says on there, uh, it was done by Henry Owings with David Yao, mm-hmm. but I... Henry, Henry helped lay it out. I designed the whole book. It looks like that because that's the way I made it look. I did all the retouching on every photo, cleaned them all up. And Henry was an invaluable help. I don't know in design, and he he was an invaluable help with uh, lots and lo- lots and lots of good ideas, some bad ideas. Like sometimes the pages would be so full of stuff, and I was going, "What do you? Why do you have all this stuff on this one page?" And he said, "I'm just trying to." Shit as much stuff in as I can. I said, "Don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Just put one picture on that page and one picture on that page, and yeah." You
0: know. Well, it it is a perfect, and I mean that perfect coffee table book. And I think everybody, even if you're not a fan of the band, should own that book. It's
1: a. I mean, I, and I'm not patting us on the back. I'm just being completely honest. It's the best band book I've ever seen. Like this, to me, the simple fact that it's got a list at the end of every show we played with every band that we played with, what the fuck? That's just amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And um, that's all, that's David Sims. He kept a list of every show we played. And his uh, real list, before it was put into the book, also shows how much money we made which, in retrospect, I really, I really wish that we had included that because there's nothing embarrassing about the money we made because, you know, some of them, we made a shit ton of money. But sometimes, you know, there was, you know, that show in Audible where we made $13 or the one in Rhode Island where we, he's, the guy said he paid us, but he forgot to. And, you know, just like it would have been an uh, even more interesting document if it had the amount of money we got paid.
0: How did you feel when when you came up to Canada for shows? Did you think the audience was pretty receptive up here?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. It, um, not really much difference that I could tell from uh, from the U.S. Uh, very early on, I think in Montreal we made friends with this guy named Argon, like the like the uh, element Argon, mm-hmm. and uh, he was French Canadian and didn't his French his English was pretty broken. I remember the first time we played in Montreal, and there were, you know, maybe 11 people in the audience. Uh, he's going, If only you had lips! If only you had lips! <laughs> and uh, that's what we called, after that, that's what we called If Only You Had Lips, because of that. And we sort of became friends with him, and we'd see him every time we came to, to Montreal.
0: Well, Flipper, were you a fan of that band early on, and how did you get approached to be a part of that reunion?
1: I was uh, yeah when flip when I first heard Flipper when I first heard the uh, Love Canal seven inch and the Brainwash seven inch I was floored I was because you know there there you had the Butthole Surfers and then there was Flipper and I was going these guys they're fucking artists this is this is punk rock art and um that Brainwash seven inch are you familiar with the Brainwash seven inch
0: I am familiar with it it's it's fucking awesome
1: oh yeah I mean I remember at the time that was what 1980 or something like that maybe 79, I think 1980, um, and I would say to my friends that that brainwash single was the most important recording since Abbey Road, and um, which had only been like, you know, 10 years. So, yeah, so when they, had, when uh, Steve, uh, Stephen DePace asked me if I'd like to sing for them doing some shows, I'd didn't hesitate i mean are you fucking kidding me that that made me feel like that was just i couldn't believe it and he told me that the other people that they were considering were um ian MacKay, keith morris and believe it or not moby <laughs> and uh he saw me he saw uh steve saw me play um a song with uh, Helios creed with chrome in los angeles and that night and that's when he asked me if i would sing for Clifford. And I'm just beyond honored. That was so much fun. Such an important band. Those guys are great. Rachel, who played bass on most of the shows, was amazing. And Bruno played the first time around. He was amazing. And then uh, on the European tour, Mike Watt played bass. And Mike is uh, an interesting man.
0: I feel like you have a story there.
1: Well, I knew, I, I sort of, Mike Watt and I were kind of acquaintances. We didn't really know each other well. We'd run into each other a few times and we, you know, I've done his radio show and then he was playing bass with Porno for Pyros when the Jesus Lizard did the big day out in Australia and I sort of got to know him then, but then spending every day with him in the van and at soundcheck and at shows and in the hotel and stuff, uh, I told him four times in that month of August that he's the weirdest man I've ever met in my life (laughs) and he didn't seem surprised. Well, I'd
0: like to take you to the infamous dick-sucking discussion and Fix. To this day, it is still one of the funniest moments in film history. Did you love playing this up on stage to really get the clueless members of your audience really believing that that was true?
1: God, I don't remember what that, I don't remember what was said in
0: that. You were just like, uh, you guys were in a... Oh, something about...
1: Yeah, like you, at a bus station or something? Yes.
0: Yes. You guys were at a bus station in Ohio, and Al would come there, and you guys taught him how to suck dick.
1: Yeah, I'll have to watch it again.
0: Do you really like fucking with your audience when you're up there? Is that has that always been something <laughs> primal for you?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It's fun, you know. I mean, it's all in good spirit, you know. I don't want I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but uh, sure, you got to fuck with them.
0: Well, finally, what can we expect from you coming up?
1: I would, I, I hope, more acting. You know, this uh, this COVID thing has been weird. I got laid off on March 27th, and since then, um, I've just been uh, busy with a handful of things, a lot of domestic stuff, chores and projects that I enjoy, and uh, taking long walks and drinking a lot and uh, cooking. Um, and I don't... No, presently if I'm going to have my job back when, uh, when the dust settles. So, um, hopefully I'll get some acting jobs to pay the bills.
0: Well, David, I don't even know that words are really going to describe just how much you mean to the art world in all forms. Your stage presence is unrivaled. You've helped to master an entire genre of music. Your acting work continues to impress... I, I honestly yeah, would just ahead. like to thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with me. It means the literal world to me. You are one of my favorite musicians of all time, and I I hope that people come away from this checking you out if they don't already know you or giving you a revisit. I think you are s- truly one of the most important frontmen that will ever live.
1: <laughs> well, that's very nice, thank <laughs> you. Thank you very much, Robert. That's
0: very nice. Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Again, if you don't know the Jesus Lizard, just stop this podcast and go listen. And if you only know David from that, make sure you go check out Scratch Acid, Quee, Flipper, and all of his acting work because he is one of the most genuinely cool people out there. And I hope when this pandemic is over, we're going to see him on stage again doing what he does best, being one of the most incendiary visual treats you will ever witness. This concludes our broadcast day.